This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcowm.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, if there's one topic that it seems we find especially challenging, it's research and measurement. The last Gatehouse State of the Sector Survey, links in the show notes, asked more than a thousand IC professionals to describe their approach to measurement. What did it find? Well, 20% said they were novices. In other words, they said, we don't or very rarely measure our IC activities. A massive 58% said their approach was evolving. They occasionally use data and metrics to check how they're doing, but they struggle to keep up the momentum on measurement. So in this episode, we are lifting the lid on all things research and measurement with an experienced and thoughtful expert in the field, Benjamin Ellis. Benjamin started his tech career as a kid, building computers in his bedroom. He went on to work in Silicon Valley and later became an IT entrepreneur, launching and supporting tech startups. In all, Benjamin has now spent more than three decades at the cutting edge of technology and communication. His technical expertise lies in networks, big data, machine learning, data governance, the list goes on. But his real interest, he says, lies in the intersection between technology and people. 
Today, as the chief executive of Social Optic, Benjamin is aiming to make the world a slightly better place by asking really intelligent questions that enable corporations, governments, and public bodies to make better decisions. So whether you are a measurement novice or a guru, I'm very hopeful this conversation will give you some fresh insight and some added momentum to measure. And if that is the case, I'd be very grateful if you could rate the show on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. That way we will be more discoverable for other IC pros out there struggling with this issue. So without further ado, let's lift the lid on measurement with Benjamin Ellis. Benjamin, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Internal Comms Podcast. This is actually a conversation I've been wanting to have for some time, so thank you very much. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Now, it says on your company website that you are often described as a social technologist, an entrepreneur, and a data geek, and that you have a passion for exploring the intersection between people and technology. Now, I just wondered if we could unpack that a bit. What drives that interest? Where did it start? And how does it manifest itself? Oh, wow. It's my worst nightmare when people ask me to describe myself in a few words. Um, <laughs> so I like a, a thousand mile an hour pen portrait, which will help you make a little bit of sense of Benjamin Ellis. So, um, my father was actually uh, an entrepreneur. He set up his first business when I was a, a young kid and, and kind of very visionary character. And he saw the early home computers and he bought one and said, right, you need to learn to, to use this. Now, bearing in mind, I was like eight or nine years old at this point. Um, anyway, fast forward a few years. And by 13, I was writing commercial software. I'd sold my kind of first software and was a real proper, what these days we would call you know, a computer geek. Um, and it was just my kind of safe space, very shy teenager, very shy of people, but like, you know, the computer was somewhere I could sit down and do, do stuff heavily dyslexic. So also, you know, kind of the keyboard got over those sorts of things. So it was my world. Um, and that was really my kind of early career, uh, went on and did a degree in engineering and kind of worked with Silicon Valley technology companies and kind of building out computer networks and the internet. And it was fantastically exciting, but as I did that more and more, I realized that the big challenges that I faced to what I wanted to do wasn't the technology. It was the stuff on the end of the technology, this, these, these awkward things on the end of the communications <laughs> networks that I was building, um, which apparently were called people uh, and were apparently quite important to getting stuff done. Um, so kind of in the middle of my career, I went back to university. I did a postgraduate qualification in psychology and really got fascinated not just by people but particularly people in organizations and how organizations work as systems and that really is my my kind of passion and fascination still so actually a shy geek uh, at heart um kind of ironic and this year i'm actually on the board of the chartered institute uh, of public relations so it's kind of a, a juxtaposition there but that's kind of my world really is um a geek's view on communications and culture and the impact on them that's that's kind of what makes my world go around and where i believe that i can help make the world a little bit better i hope that's my objective just out of curiosity what was that first machine that you were working on when you were eight or whatever you were 
Oh, wow, I'm going to give away my age now. So um, <laughs> it, it was actually something called a Video Genie, which you will have never heard of. It was compatible with something called a Tourist AT, which you will never heard of. Wow. Um, so they, the, the point that my, <laughs> my computing history intersects uh, with popular culture is probably the Singhair Spectrum ZX81. So there will be listeners of a certain age who will be going, ah, oh, okay, and a whole bunch of others going, you what? Um, the next computer I ha had after that was a ZX Spectrum, and that is one where some of my millennial friends go, oh, yeah, I know that game's machine. Like, so it really was incredibly early days. Literally, if you wanted a computer, you had to build it yourself. Fascinating times, long before the web, long before Google existed. Um, and that actually got me into the internet as well. Um, and I ended up working for a company that's quite big now called Cisco Systems from their very early days and kind of on the inside of, of watching the internet get built. When we spoke a few weeks ago, you shared some examples of how your company has been helping both the National Health Service and the UK government throughout this pandemic. And I wondered if that might serve as a bit of an introduction to your work. I'm guessing there's some things you probably can't tell us, but are you able to tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've been involved in lately? Yeah, I can give some ideas there without um, giving away any big secrets. So um, it, it's one of those twists of fate. So I've been involved in a, a number of startups and have helped fund startups over the years. Um, again, they're usually where technology is making a difference for people. And one of those was in the domain of genomics. And that is basically using computers to read your DNA and kind of analyze it, identify diseases and, and conditions. And that kind of got me into the health world a little bit. And then kind of through that with social optic and that bit of history for me, we've ended up working in that domain. So with bits of the NHS and, and kind of pharmaceuticals and, and that area. So it's not my original domain, but it actually is a, is a great one where right now data, as I think everyone's becoming increasingly aware, can make a massive difference to, to healthcare. And so we've been working on everything from kind of gathering evidence and opinions to inform legislation uh, through to identifying problems uh, and bottleneck areas and, and kind of helping to resolve those at scale and at speed through to looking at um, employee well-being um, through through this really challenging time for most organizations. So it's it's been fantastic for the team here because we've had the privilege of being on the kind of front line of, of a lot of what's going off. It's been you know, hard work and some some stressful moments and really challenge what we can do in terms of like the volumes of data and how quickly we had to get very accurate answers for that. Um, but it has actually also been fun as well and a nice way to kind of serve the public in, in this time. So it's honed their skills, definitely, I'd say. But this pandemic is really, I'm guessing, highlighting the potential of big data, and I'm using that phrase like I know what it means, really, and I bet a lot of people do that, but using big data to actually solve problems like never before. I mean, I'm guessing it's a real tool in our armory that, say, even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we just wouldn't have had. Absolutely. And the technology has moved on incredibly. An example of one thing we had to do recently was looking at about 3 million words worth of text. Now, for a human to go through that and make sense of that, you know, it is a task that would take a huge team and a long period of time. You know, with, with modern computing, we actually analyze that data, understand the sentiment, what the key topics are, how people are phrasing things, what's linked, literally in a few minutes. And that was not possible uh, even a few years ago. I mean, kind of in the early days of my computing, there was something called ELISA, which was this kind of 
like a, a chatbot, we'd call it in, in, in modern parlance. Yeah, that progression over a number of decades with the kind of computing power we've got now just means that we can very quickly understand things. You still need the humans to understand stuff properly, but what we have is really good tools to help get to that insight. And it's really important right now because things are changing really quickly and you need to have an accurate map of the territory to make the right decisions. Because if you don't understand what's going off, and you don't understand what's working, you'll do things that don't work and that makes stuff worse. Um, mm. So it really is the moment where actually having that data-driven approach to inform the decisions that are made you know, intellectually and with compassion by the leadership team, it, it needs an evidence base to understand what's going off because different people are having really different experiences. And that's something I'd really highlight now. Yeah, the truth is often hidden in averages is something that I say a lot. You, you really need to understand who's having different experiences and how do we help them. We can't, you know, a line manager can get down to an individual level, but as a leader, I can at least understand the different groups that I'm working with and what they need and what they need me to be doing with the leadership team. There's a lot in there that I'm really keen to dive into more, but I'm going to step back just for a moment and just because I think it's always helpful to start with some definitions so that we all know what we're talking about here. I think I use the words research and measurement interchangeably. I'm sure I do. But I also, at the back of my mind, know that those things are probably different. So let's get the playing field. <laughs> let's understand <laughs> the playing field, as it were, or put some guardrails up around this conversation. Research, measurement, are they the same things? Do you think of them differently? How do they intersect? So we think of them very deliberately, very differently. And, and again, there can be different definitions, but a helpful frame, um, and this is helpful for people to understand what they're doing, is to think about research as generating new knowledge. Right? It's about discovery, about proving, about disproving things. Very few organizations actually get to do research. We are phenomenally privileged here that we get to do both kind of offer our own resource and pay for primary research, going out, discovering new things, understanding new things. I love that. Um, that's my kind of explorer gene likes that. Measurement is about understanding the impact of things usually or understanding what's changing. Again, it can be other things, but that's a useful frame. And you need those two things. You need to discover new stuff, which is going to lead you to a course of action. And then you need to measure whether what you're doing is working and making a difference or not. And that bit, that measurement bit is really challenging for, for most because it touches on all sorts of challenging cultural things in organizations. Thank you for that. That's very, very clear. So then what are some of the common misconceptions or mistakes that people make when it comes to either or both research and measurement? I bet there's a lot of them, actually. But do you see the common mistakes coming up time and time and time again, or at least kind of the same questions coming up from clients? Oh, I, get, and I get what you mean. And I always have to separate kind of what the most common issues are from things that just wind me up. Um, oh, <laughs> we can start there if you like. Well, okay, we start. So one of the things, and it is a genuine issue, is um, and in science, there's this idea of kind of falsifiability and the idea of kind of cognitive biases that come in when we're doing research, because we're, we're kind of researching people, but we're people ourselves. So it's a really weird construct. It's like things looking at things. Um, oftentimes, people will go out to gather evidence that something is true. And that seems to logically make sense. It is phenomenally dangerous. You know, if I said I want to go out and uh, I'm going to prove that pink elephants exist, 
Well, I can go out and do that because I can go out and somewhere I will find a pink elephant. It might be a bath toy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I can come back and go, do you know what? Pink elephants exist. That's not actually useful insight. And a lot of the time what I see is people kind of decide something and they go out to look for the evidence to prove that they are right. Most of the time, you actually want to go out and find evidence to prove that you're wrong and hope that you don't find any. And that's a oh. dramatic difference, right? So you can go and find, you know, if I want to find a metric, and this can be a short conversation with some leadership teams, you know, if they want a metric that's going to make them look good, you can find one. You can construct one. You can go and you can find evidence. You're ignoring oftentimes the reality of what's going off. So actually really you want to go and look at the opposite thing, right? Investigating where things aren't working will tell you so much more than looking at where they are, but that's really hard for people because to the measurement piece, oftentimes what you're going to discover is what you're doing didn't work or you failed. Mm, mm. And one of the things that differentiates kind of high growth, innovative businesses from those that are not so much is actually the attitude towards failure and viewing it as learning and iteration as opposed to oh, somebody's failed, get rid of them. Um, you know, oftentimes in starting a startup, you'll actually hire the people who have failed lots because they know what failure looks like and they know what not to do, right? And they can spot those signs. Um, and it's the same with culture, right? Uh, you know, you, you kind of want to look at where things aren't working so you can address that and let the working bit kind of carry on. So that thing about going out to prove that you're right is, is my kind of pet bugbear and, and one that I'll often challenge people on. Are you gathering evidence to find out if things aren't working? Because that's what you need to fix. Right. Okay. I can it absolutely make sense because if you're going out to prove something, is this as you say, you will find it somewhere you will find it. But what you're raising is a really interesting point about how we present, I think, our findings and how we deal culturally with failure. Because, I mean, some of us realise that failure actually is not the opposite of success. It's often one step closer to success because just to work out what doesn't work. And so we can now try something else that hopefully might or get us closer. Do you sometimes find yourself, I mean, you can't spin results, but is there a way of telling some, a client that something's not working in a way that doesn't offend them? Or I'm just trying to think of the right word because I've been in so many client situations where I'm having to say something quite uncomfortable and I'm realizing people are not taking it as a learning opportunity. Do, do, do you have a way of getting over that problem? A wise mentor taught me something around board presentations. Um, and the, the kind of simplest way I can frame it is this way is, is taking the step forward. You know, we did this thing, we spotted this problem, we've done this to resolve the problem, and this is how we're going to know it's fixed, and this will be the end result. So it's like stepping through, because oftentimes people see the failure, stop and run away at that point. Whereas as you've described, and again, there's a thousand cheesy quotes, aren't there, about the, the kind of light bulb and failing a thousand times. You know, going, actually, this was a failure, this was the learning, this is the action we're taking, and this is how we're going to check that that works, and right. this is going to be the impact. That's kind of where you want to take. Because people see all the failure as, oh my goodness, this is a threat to my identity and what I've done. Stepping it forward to... And this is what it enables us to do that we didn't know before is where people go, oh, right. Um, yeah, so that makes yeah, perfect sense. Non-trivial thing to do, but if you can do that, it, it kind of transforms the, this, the discussion, becomes a, a strategic one and people can feel safe and comfortable. Because that's the other thing. We, we talk a lot about the information on the table because a lot of the time it gets caught up in ego, right? You know, 
Dave came up with this plan. Jane came up with this plan. Jane's plan. It's like, it's not that. Data says this. This is an action we can take to do differently. This is going to be the outcome. It's you know taking taking the individuals out of it as much as you can and taking a shared responsibility to go and do the next thing. And again, that's hard, mm. um, but it is about having a, a positive culture that supports that. Mm. Now I can see how that's so important. Now you'll know as well as I. I've seen this so many times that organisations either struggle to measure. I mean, particularly when it comes to internal communications, struggle to measure the effectiveness of of communications or they'll undertake exercises that you know with hand over heart i think are sometimes both literal and metaphorical tick box exercises what's the real reason for measuring and researching i'm just wondering if you could give some actual examples of the tangible value that you've seen it bring to organizations maybe you can't actually name names but i mean have you seen people take literally a quite a a dramatic change of course, for example, as a result of measurement? Very definitely. And I hinted earlier on, it's one of our test questions when we're working with the board of a new organisation is, what are you going to do with this information? Because oh. um, for my team here, you know, if we discover something that's an amazing insight that transforms the organisation, they're going to stick it in a drawer. That's a little bit demotivating. Um, and conversely, sometimes people actually want a vanity metric. They just want something that says, we did a good job. And it's like, that's not going to make you any better, and that's not not healthy. On the flip side, and just a, a couple of examples, really recent ones, we were working with an organisation. They'd gone into the, the pandemic. Just at that point, they were actually in the process of commissioning a new HQ. And so it was kind of a challenge. Like we're all leaving the office, and it's the old office, and if we come back, it's going to be this new office. Well, the time was actually great because they were able to do some research with us to help the workforce understand what they really wanted from a new building. And that's changed really dramatically, strangely enough now, because their view of having been a very office-based organization is suddenly, we can do this stuff from home. We don't need that much space. And actually the space we want is quite different. So that meant two things for them. One, their build cost is gonna be dramatically different than it was, and I'm talking tens of millions of pounds less. And two, the workforce have been engaged in that process and feel ownership of that new building when it comes to be. And their, their workforce is a very long-serving workforce. So they've been around a long while. They'll be there as the new building comes in. So for them, they save money. They've got the employees engaged and they actually help the employees through a transition of working from home that was forced on them as well. So, you know, wins all, all round. Um, yeah. You know, we had another organisation that had really been struggling culturally. They had a really high turnover rate. They really couldn't get to the bottom of why. Quite, a you know, almost a toxic culture. Um, it, you walked in and you knew it wasn't a pleasant and happy place. And really quite quickly through doing research with the, the organizations, some large scale surveys, we were able to highlight a couple of things that were problematic. And actually, one small intervention, which was actually a leadership team Zoom call, ah, Zoom calls <laughs> every week with an open Q&A where they would stop and wait for questions until there were questions. Wow. In the course of six weeks, completely turned that organization around. Completely. Wow. You would not recognize it. You know, the staff turnover has fallen off. It's a really positive place. They are really motivated on working on the problems that they're working on because that was the thing for them, that leadership just weren't visible and they didn't trust them. And that created this you know, cascade of, of lack of trust. They just needed to see people 
and have an environment where they could ask the really hard questions and realize there weren't negative consequences for that. You know, really small intervention they would never have got to without really digging into what people were struggling with and why and thinking that through. I mean, one of the things to, to point out that I think you said it took six, I think you said six weeks then. Yeah. And I think that's so important. So that, that change is then, it's clear what needs to change, but don't necessarily ex- expect a, a, a switch on the wall that you can flick and it's fine. You have to keep plugging away for a little while until you turn the corner on something. So I think, I think that's worth saying up front. And so that six weeks, I mean, really what drove that was actually the, the kind of change in the environment enable that to happen much faster. Uh, you know, typically when we're working with an organisation and we had one CEO who we still work with now, we started on measurement and measuring their culture and changing their culture. And their CEO is like, this is a five-year programme. Right. And it has been. It's taken five years for them to just move the dial a bit. So, yeah, I mean, human systems will revert to the homeostatic. They try and stay the same. And change takes a long while. And if you're doing a big change, you've got to be in it for the long haul. But sometimes... It's just, you know, there is one thing that you can kind of unpin and fix things quite quickly. But that's the exception rather than the rule. The other thing you talked about is, I think you touched on, is, is getting people involved, making people feel that they're part of the change that they've been listened to. And I do see clients attempt to do that. It's like we're going to impose something that could potentially be quite unpopular, but let's gather views on it because if people feel that they've had their say, somehow it's going to be, you know, they're going to be less critical of it down the line again i think sometimes that might be taken a little bit of a cynical exercise because do i really want to know what people think because that's going to happen anyway nevertheless i think it's still really important that people don't just give their views but that you demonstrate that you have listened i mean would you say that that because you've got to come back around again and ask again and if you constantly show that you're not listening they will give up presumably giving their views would that be fair yeah, I'm pet bugbear number two is the annual employee engagement survey that gets done that is fussed over like you wouldn't believe. The results come in three months later and get stuffed in the drawer. It's just, you know, just write a note to everyone in a postcard saying, we don't care, we hate you. And it's, it's going <laughs> to get you the same result. Um, employee engagement surveys done right are really good because surveys actually are an act of two-way communication. Because you are saying, this is what we think is important we want to know about. You're having your say, and this is what we've done as a result. So that two-way listening process is critical. Yeah, Any research exercise is always a two-way communication, regardless of what form that takes, whether it's interviews or, or, or surveys. And people forget that at their peril. Mm. Um, so, you know, absolutely. And then when, when we look at barriers in organizations, they, they can fall into different categories. The two most common are, are structural. So there's something from a process point of view or a structural point of view that's holding the organization back, or they are perceptual. They are locked in how people perceive things. So we were working with a leadership team earlier on this year, um, really struggling to get things done, really big leadership team, just new initiatives were not happening, um, just kind of tension the whole time. You could kind of feel it in the air when you went into meetings. And drilling down and doing some big surveys with that team, it realized that they thought that everybody else thought something different, a complicated bit of linguistics, right? So this was this view that I believe this set of things and I'm really committed to the organization. They don't believe those things and they're not committed. So mm-hmm. we did a big data exercise with, with them. I gathered a lot of 
feedback from all of the leadership team. And we presented it back to them and said, look, this is a map of you as a leadership team, what you think, what you believe, what your priorities are. And they're incredibly aligned. And they were like, who's missed, <laughs> who didn't answer this? It was like, well, we had a 99% response rate. So pretty much everybody answered, you, you are really aligned. Well, we don't, we don't. And it took them like almost a day of talking that through to go, yeah, actually, we do really trust each other. And we do want the same things for this organization. And we've been fighting over just some perceptual barriers that weren't there at all. And that just unlocked a huge set of things in that organization for, for them to kind of get stuff done, to learn to work together, to welcome new people into the organization, just broke down those barriers. They just had an inaccurate map of the territory. So you know, that perceptual thing in, in organizations is often a really big problem because people don't have an accurate map. You know, the, yeah. One of my favorite things is, is you know, leadership by adjacent cube. Right, um, where particularly kind of more at the middle layers of, of management, their worldview is informed by the people in the you know diagonally adjacent cubes, right? And right. whoever kind of came past their cube, and even at a senior level, so that kind of you know if you can't you can't physically get out at the moment, but you can ask everyone and get that input and actually have a view of actually this is the reality of it. There are six really loud voices, but there's 130 people who think this thing and that that accurate map is really, really important to getting stuff done in an organization and getting over those barriers because it is oftentimes people just want to be listened to and know they've been heard and then they can crack on. Because most people, universally we find this in research, most employees want to do a really great job. Mm. So it's getting the stuff out of the way so that they can get a great job done. You say we always bring a bit of ourselves into the data. Um, and I think you have quite an interesting technique where you sometimes ask clients to predict the results of a survey. Is that right before they happen? Is that you preempting the fact that they are going to have a view on the results? Yeah, and again, human beings are really strange creatures. <laughs> um, we interpret the world within the cultural context that we operate in and our past experience. And that shades how we perceive things way more than most people realize. Um, you can completely distort how people see the world by changing the, the context. So we always start with that. You know, what are you expecting this to tell you? What do you think you're going to see? And bracketing that, it's like, oh, this is what we brought into the room. This is what the data brought into the room. Um, you can think about it another way as thinking about it as three layers, particularly at the moment, this is really important. People, however intellectual they think they are, will start with an emotional response to something. And whether they verbalize it or not, what they're starting with is, is the, the feelings around that. I'm scared about this. I'm frustrated about this. I'm excited about this. So acknowledging that and verbalizing that is actually really important. And you know, our business culture doesn't support that very well, but it's really important. What's the emotion bit of this? Get it out there. Make it clear. What's the opinion? Right. What do, what do you think? Right. What are you prejudging this with? What do you think other people think as well? And then getting down to what are the facts? What's the data? What's the ground zero? And you need to kind of peel away those layers so mm. you can understand. Oh yeah, I was kind of assuming that we were going to get really bad results from the north of England because blah blah blah, uh, and just kind of unseeing that in the data and stepping away to see what it really says. And again, just being conscious again, particularly right now. What's the emotional processing that's going off ahead of it? Because those emotions make a really big difference. So um, 
you know, fear and anger are very narrowing emotions. They reduce perception. If people are kind of feeling happy and, and positive, it broadens perception and, and you see things more broadly. So that's a process we take people through. You know, what are you bringing to the data? Because you're always bringing something. And it's the same with communication, right? If you've written something, what do you bring of you into that? And, and kind of what was there? And in writing, that can be a positive thing, right? You want the writer to, to bring something. But again, is being aware of what that thing was that you put in there. Was it what you intended? Yes, that answer is also making me think about benchmarks, you know, because you've got the whole two thirds thing. As you're saying, I was thinking two thirds because I always look at two thirds and I think, well, that's great. Two thirds of people think this or, oh my goodness, we've got a whole third, 33% selling us the opposite. So presumably you've got assumptions. Absolutely. You've got your feelings, which is very much going to kind of you know, change or, or colour your mind, your mindset and how you approach the work. Benchmarks must be so helpful. If you go in there and you know where you started maybe a, a week ago or a year ago or last quarter, that must be such a helpful thing to have. I, I would normally say when you say when people say the B word, that's like my trigger number three. It's like, oh, oh no. benchmark. <laughs> no, no. But what you actually described is the more useful thing is benchmarking against what where you are at as an organization. So that measuring change, people, people don't do measurement enough. They really don't do measuring change enough, which is about consistent, repeated measurement. Benchmarks can be incredibly deceptive um, because it means who are you comparing yourself to? And actually mm. picking a benchmark, and we do it for some organizations because it's it can be helpful, it can be useful. But it can also be um, deeply misleading. So, you know, if if I'm benchmarking your organisation against another one that's just been through a massive workforce restructure, well, that's going to impact on their results. Right? If I'm measuring against you know two financial organisations to each other, depending on the markets that they're operating in, they'll experience different things. They might both be finance. One might be retail. Uh, you know, one, one might be a high level of finance. So, what is it? You know. Who does an organization compare themselves to? We've got one organization we work with that's very old. Um, and actually, the best comparison for them is a startup because they, they cycle through people really quickly. They do new projects. They're very much like a startup, even though they've been around for ages. If you tried to compare them with their peers, it would make no sense at all. It would be a really unfair comparison. So that's on the one side. On the other side, you kind of need to know. It's like, well, you know, 30% of people in the organization strongly agree with this idea. Is that good or is that bad? It's knowing, well, actually last year, 50% did. So this is like a significant change of what's going off here. So that repeated measurement is important and measuring the impact of things. Um, again, benchmarks can end up being vanity metrics. Like we were better than all these other organizations. Like that's great. But actually, if you've only reached 20% of your potential, then you kind of failed as an organization. Yeah. Whereas mm. if you go, well, actually, we're not, we're not up at the same level as, as these but actually you reach your full potential. And again, thinking about the struggling organization I was talking about before, their scores are still really low, but compared to where they've been, massively different. You know, the, the board has achieved a lot and they'll achieve a lot more. You know, comparing them with a different organization that hadn't had to do what they've done when they've had to halve the size of the organization repeatedly for multiple years, it's like, it's not a fair comparison. Uh, you're, you're much better off competing against yourself, aren't you? So many organizations are breaking out of their sector to compete in totally different ones, aren't they? So, you know, really, where is your, 
where is your competitive set? And it could come from anywhere. So just comparing yourself with people in your sector is from a business context might might be a bit meaningless anyway, potentially. And it's going back to that thing of why are you doing the measurement? You're doing the measurement to identify problems that you can resolve. Um, and so that is a very different frame on how you use a benchmark. It's not, I'm just trying to find out that we're good here. It's mm. saying, yeah, I'm going to use, because sometimes you need to ground the data. Data needs context. Um, otherwise, you know, it's just a number. So you do need that framing. But again, the frame is there so you can go, what's the challenge? What's the action we need to take to resolve this? And how do we get to the result that, that we want? So here's, here's a question for you. Chuck Ghost, who was on the show, uh, gosh, I think it was the last season, he was going, I can't do the American accent. If I do, I'll just, I'll just be embarrassing. But he was sort of basically saying, there's no such thing as measurement fatigue, Katie. I'm not having it. You can ask people as much as you like. The only thing we do have is some really badly designed surveys in internal comms, but no such thing as measurement fatigue. That said, there are lots of opportunities throughout most days to give your view on something, even if it's just the Trustpilot survey of the last website you went to. Google are now advertising in the UK to, to give your Google reviews to the last high street business that you visited. So where do you stand on this question? Measurement fatigue? A thing? Not a thing? Well, Chuck is that much taller than me that I'm definitely <laughs> never going to argue with Chuck. Uh, I'll say that. I, yeah, well, well observed by Chuck. And I think it's ex yeah, he's exactly right. And we both agree on that. Usually where you've got, you know, particularly survey fatigue, we get you know, talked about a lot, is because people have been asked impossible to answer irrelevant questions repeatedly and nothing done with the results, right? And, you know, it, do you know what? I'd get conversation fatigue if I had conversations like that. Yeah, every, every conversation like, hi, I want to know this. And then you know, the other person starts to talk and you walk away. It's like, what? I'm, yeah, I'm done with conversations now. So people genuinely want to make things better. I want to do a good job. And that is a surprising universal in every organization. So if that's not happening, you've done something wrong. And so to, you know, whether it's the badly done, badly designed employee engagement survey with all the wrong questions, or whether it's the way that that's been done and communicated, where the, the feedback's been heard and nothing's been actioned. And yeah, people are going to be tired by that, right? So yeah. it's about designing things in a respectful way that understands the audience, that is questions that they can answer, and then actioning that and demonstrating how you've actioned that is really important. It's an act of communication treat it like it um you know then you don't you don't have those issues and just can we not do the poll of the day thing as well i mean that's my just <laughs> what i mean and poll of the what well, oh, poll of the day well because I, it's it's an irrelevancy it's it's yeah. it's useless well it's yeah, nothing's ever done with the result. Is that what you mean? It's kind of... Exactly. Ask me something that's going to stop me doing my job that you're going to do nothing with. It's like, that's <laughs> just... You know, don't waste people's time, right? What you're yeah. Survey fatigue is that people just wasted people's time. And nobody, nobody on this planet likes their time wasted. Yeah. Um, and you can do fun polls. And, and that can, you know, it can be a bonding, binding thing. And I'm being a bit kind of overly on that. But it's one of my things is like, do you have a daily poll on your internet? What kind of questions do you put in there? Um, you know, if we get low response rates sometimes on a survey, it's like, yeah, you know, you've been repeatedly asking people irrelevant stuff and doing nothing with it. 
surprisingly enough, if we go out with questions, nothing's going to happen. So, mm, and mm. sometimes you have to take people through a process as well if they've had that history saying, we're going to just do some really short pulse surveys to show that we listen, to show that it's something useful, and then build from there. So again, it's like starting a conversation, right? You, you, know, you can't, you, sometimes organizations get themselves in this horrible hole where they did a huge employee engagement exercise that went in the drawer and a year went by and two years went by. And three mm. years went by. Now everybody's terrified to ask the question. Um, yeah. You kind of get yourself past that. And in the same way, if you've you know, been doing a weekly poll on how do you feel today? I mean, yeah, if you ask people every Friday, how do you feel this week? That's going to fatigue people, right? Because it's, yeah. you know, it's kind of obvious when you sit down. It's like, would, would I like somebody to do that to me? No. Well, no. don't do it then. I mean, I think you raise an interesting issue there. I, I always you know, encourage clients to to do the pre-work and the pre-communications before you ask. So you set it in some kind of context, you know, this is why I'm asking, this is when I'll be asking, this is what we'll be doing the results, this is the timeline, just so that they understand what to expect and when. I think that can be so important as well, rather than just us showing up and putting the equivalent of a microphone under their noses. But to get them in the mindset for what's happening, I think can be quite useful. And that thing about repeated, consistent measurement as well, because not only is it beneficial from a measurement point of view, particularly in slow-moving organisations, you know, knowing that every September I'm going to get to say my piece. Yeah, actually, it's a really nice rhythm and you can make that part of that. I know every year I'm going to sit down and be made to reflect on how I've demonstrated the company culture. Hmm, Okay. You know, it, it is just so beneficial to have that as kind of part of the cadence because it drives behaviors and it means people know it's like, I'm going to get listened to, this is going to get sorted out. Really, really big difference to how the culture feels. Mm. Which touches on another little phrase of mine, which is that the method is a message. You said that the act of research and measurement is a two-way communication exercise. My feeling is, and I particularly see this in qualitative research, that when people really genuinely feel that they've been listened to with an objective but caring mind in front of them that genuinely wants to know, and maybe even asks them occasionally a follow-up question to check that they've properly understood, that experience, I've had interviewees get up and say, wow, you know, thank you for that, because it's just been a moment of kind of offloading. Um, I mean, I'm particularly drawn to qualitative research I'm just wondering whether you have that same sort of fascination with qual over quant or for you are both kind of, you need both and they should be working in harmony. I'm just interested, curious about your, your attitude to qual and quant there. So we had historically up until a few years ago, you know, our world is, is quants. And so for people kind of new to that term, it's like we turn things into numbers. So we use things like Likert scales a lot, you know, Strongly disagree, strongly agree. You might hate them, but they are really amazing to analyze. And there's all sorts of things we can do that that move it beyond averages where we can start to kind of identify clusters and groups. We love that stuff. There's been a real shift in the technology that we can use in the last few years where we can do a lot more of the qualitative. So this is the kind of long form answers. And I, I mentioned we did something recently with, with millions of words. Actually, it's a whole different kind of insight. And normally you kind of use that as a, as, as a cycle. So oftentimes we want to do some, some qual, some interviews, get some context, do some quant work to understand, you know, is, this, what, is what we've discovered universal across the organization? So that building a map thing. 
And then when we discover things in that quantitative data, it's like, well, actually, we found this issue in people who've been here three to five years, or we found this issue in the accounts function. You might want to then go in and do some interviews and do some qual. But yeah, now, actually, both of those technology can can help with. Um, you know, we've there was an exercise we did recently where we got everyone to describe the organization in a, in a few sentences. Really big organization, thousands of people stuck it into the the wonderful algorithms for it to create a one sentence summary. Showed that to the senior leadership team and like, yeah, that's us. That's, that's our amazing. I yeah, and it, it, you know. It, it, it was, and it, you know, there's a sometimes that works better than other times. It needs humans to interpret the data, but it was really interesting how, like, a for them realizing, oh, actually, yeah, our, our employees do get this, and b just how the algorithms had synthesized this into this beautiful one sentence summary that really summed up the the battle that they were having as an organization. It was absolutely fascinating to see the look on their faces. Would it be fair to call this artificial intelligence, or am I? reaching there by calling it ai there's a, a whole domain i mean i think like generally in the world we call it ai we'd call it artificial intelligence i think for um the kind of more geeky side of the universe that that becomes a whole discussion around what you mean by generalizable intelligence and what's you know what's machine learning and all these other phrases but it's like do you know what it's a label it's it's technically artificial intelligence because it's not real intelligence. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I'm, you're okay to call it AI. In this in this room, we'll go with that one. If 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 uh, <laughs> if we were kind of more geeky audience, we we drill down into seven different layers of stuff. Computers are good at answers, not so good at questions. And actually, you know, questions are important. And the questions that you you bring, like I said, when we present the data, it's like what what are we asking here? Start with start with that. Um, yeah. Mm. I'm sure computers will do great things with artificial intelligence, um, but actually it's, it's always a, a tool for the most part. For now, we'll see what happens in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, no, fascinating, fascinating. So in the latest Gatehouse State of the Sector survey, and I should have done my homework here and found out what the benchmark was, but certainly last year, we saw that 39% of respondents to that survey said that they do not measure the impact of their IC campaigns on behaviour change and business outcomes. And I'm not in any way surprised to hear that, you know, nearly 40% are saying that. Why do you think we struggle so much to measure the impact of our activities and internal comms? I mean, I've got some ideas here. And one of them presumably is this causal relationship between our work and the changes that we're seeing. And we can't always make that hard connection. Is that the problem? Or do you think it's a little bit uh, wider than that? There's a bit of a failure to measure to some degree. And one of the things I've learned over the years about failure is it's very rarely a single cause. Failure, systemic failure happens because of multiple causes. So let's pick apart the measurement one. One, the elephant in the room is most people are terrified to do effective measurement because effective measurement most of the time should be telling you where you failed. And that's, that needs a certain cultural environment, right? I mean, that's a brave individual who goes, I'm going to go and measure how I failed. Um, but actually, you know, that's a really good interview question sometimes if you're going into an organization. It's like, if I fail at this job, I learn and iterate, how will you deal with that? <laughs> it's a good test of leadership, right? So, you know, thing one is, are you prepared to do measurement that's going to show that you may have failed? If you're not, you're not measuring the right thing and you're not brave enough to, to do it. So that's thing one. Thing two is this whole issue around the complex domain 
of correlation and causality, which is just means sometimes the numbers are going to move anyway. Yeah, if I if I was going to measure the happiness of an organization and find out if handing out sweets has made a difference to that, and the CEO gets fired halfway through that process, and it was a leader that everybody loved. Yeah, my measurement is going to be messed up by that, right? I'm no longer measuring the impact of the suites, really silly example, deliberately. What I'm now measuring is the impact of the CEO. So you, with all of these things, you usually want multiple measures, and there's some different ways and frameworks constructing those, so multiple measures and allowing for what what were the dominating things in this that that changed it and that might have impacted as well. Because, you know, it's... Yes, it's a science, but science is something that happens in labs in a controlled environment. Organizations just a little bit more messy than that. And so you have to be prepared Yeah, that I'm going to measure and I might show what I failed at. And the measurements may get invalidated by other stuff that happens and I may just have to go at that again. And so I want multiple different measures on things and having a little bit of a framework on that. It's not easy. If it was, everybody would do it well. <laughs> the way to get good at measurement is to do it repeatedly and to build it into everything that you do because we were talking about how like a you know, survey is a conversation research is a conversation actually measurement is a conversation with yourself sometimes because when you say how am i going to measure this that takes you to the question of well what does success look like and how will i know i've achieved that we often talk about two different types of measurement success measurement how do i know that this was successful and an impact measurement, how do I know that what I did actually made the difference, right? Um, and there's a really, uh, um, one, of our, one of our testers is an amateur pilot, I guess you can't be his amateur, it's, you know, he flies. Um, and um, he has all sorts of great flying stories, but one of them is, you know, this kind of doing, doing a flying lesson with an instructor and, you know, coming down, and the pilot lands, and it's this great landing, and you know, just absolutely perfect. And turns to the instructor and says, Well, how was that? Did I pass? And the instructor's like, That was a fantastic landing. It was perfect, but this is the wrong runway. <laughs> and yeah, oftentimes I've seen that. Particularly, we kind of we create an idea, it turns into a comms program, it turns into these outputs, and we do this thing. It's like it gets executed perfectly. It's a perfect landing. It's completely the wrong runway. It's like back here, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, we were trying to get line managers more engaged in recruiting new staff. And yeah, actually, what we've ended up with is XYZ. So actually, that discipline and measurement, even if you don't do it, thinking about how you would measure it takes you to what does success look like? How do I know that's happened? And again, to getting good at measurement, just keep trying it. It doesn't have to be complicated. Um, you, know, you, you can um, power up metrics. We talk a lot about in startups, right? Um, you, you can kind of hack these things. It's like, well, I, I, you know, maybe I don't have any budget for measurement, but I want to show it works or start with it. I'm going to send something out and I'm going to phone eight people randomly and say, hey, did you get that? What did you think of it? What would you do differently? That's measurement, right? It's a random sample. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that might take half an hour, an hour of your time. You can go do that. And then you can start to understand, well, actually, I want to construct things that kind of give me feedback that let me change things. And then you can start to build measurement in, um, you know, usually whenever we do a survey, we have some, some feedback in there. Continuous improvement is a big thing for us. And that means kind of measuring, what did you think of it? This giving people the opportunity to say, and, and that's a form of measurement as well. So there is no excuse for not doing it. <laughs> 
um, start small and and learn. It, it's the skill set that should be there for any communications professional. Benjamin, I just want to sort of pause and for a moment there and reflect on what you've just said, because I had a question about sort of imagining that I was a new IC manager and I was seeking to measure my effectiveness and, you know, where do I start? But what you've just said there is such an important starting point, which is, do you know what the end result looks like? Can you quantify it? Can you write it down? Because if you can't do that, presumably there's almost almost no way you're going to be able to measure the effectiveness of what you're doing because you don't know what the end looks like. So would that be a key starting point? If I'm a new IC manager, I'm looking to embark on some measurement, that's a great place to start. It would absolutely be a place to start because the other thing it deals with is is what we call goal conflict, um, which is always a challenge sometimes in internal comms. It's like, is, is everyone trying to achieve the same thing here? And are they complementary, coexisting or conflicting objectives? So yeah, if you start with that, you also surface that and, and what the stakeholder issues are. So it's a good practice. If I'm being really honest, I think I see, in fact, I had this conversation just the other week, actually, with somebody who I think her motivations for measurement were mainly to prove, if I'm being honest, to prove her worth to a senior management team, because some people just don't get the value of internal comms. But I had a colleague kind of questioning whether that was actually quite a dangerous starting point. And would you be better to try and put aside your concerns about your value as a function and just seek to find the interesting, valuable insights? Do you see where I'm coming from there? I do. And there's um, there's a, a phrase, uh, was it physician heal thyself? Uh, internal comms person, your main skill is understanding your audiences, your executive stakeholders are an audience. If right. you go to them with evidence to demonstrate you're doing a great job, yeah, for me as a, a CEO, that doesn't improve my life. It's like, congratulations. I, well, I was going to say I'd hire the right person. If they came to me with that measure, I'd think I'd hire the wrong person, actually. Mm. If you come to me with a measure that says, actually, Here's some insight about the organization. Here's, here's some places we can move the dial. That's, that's useful to me. So yeah, most people's default, particularly more junior folks, is to come with a measurement that shows that they've done a great job. Useless and irritating for most senior execs because they've seen it a thousand times before. And you know, the first time you, you get anything like that as a senior exec, you're like, why have they mentioned this? And what are they telling me? It's like, you telling me you've done a good job interesting somebody else telling me you've done a good job more convincing you show me something that i can do and use to make the organization better to have more of an impact senior executive that's useful and interesting so come with those measures don't you know avoid the vanity metrics and similarly actually even getting vanity metrics for for execs which is like the second order temptation it's like i'm not going to get metrics that make me look good i'll get metrics that make my boss look good actually is also a dangerous temptation it's like how can you find metrics that help you do the job better because actually at a board level that's what a good board will be looking for anyway right last last thing they want is people going hey we've done a good job it's like you have failed to maximize the opportunities because any non-executive director is going to look at what you're doing going their whole job is to find what you've missed right so yeah. those kind of measurements don't work you want to bring something where they go oh actually that's really interesting here's some other things that go alongside that and that's really given me some evidence to make this decision win so yeah, yeah. that me measures to determine whether you've been successful or not it's one form of measurement but it's one of the two right impacts and success measures 
yes, do you measure that something's been successful, but measure the impact. What caused that success? Because that's your repeatable result. It's interesting because as you're saying it, I'm thinking, you know, you'd never have a finance department that sort of conducts a bit of measurement to its board to say, look, our numbers add up. I mean, that's yeah. the equivalent, isn't it? Our numbers that's add the up. job. That's the job. Right? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. No, you're paid to do that bit. But the insight from the finance team that says we've looked at the numbers and we've discovered that we're spending 50% more in this territory on that product than we are in the other territory on this product, you know, that sort of bit of insight that actually enables me to make a smarter business decision. Oh, well, that's, that's useful to me. And I think this is a big bugbear of mine that we would never launch a new product or service without a great amount of customer insight. I mean, we would crawl all over. We'd create audience personas and customers personas, and we'd do loads of research, and then we'd get the product, we'd test the product. We just don't seem to have that employee insight department as we would have the customer insight department. But actually, I've always thought that it costs less to have employee insight. I mean, they literally are where they used to be when we could all be in the same room. They're just down the corridor or they're just on the next site. And we can kind of ask them for free, which is not always the way, not always the case, is it, for customers? So do you get a bit frustrated by the lack of genuine insight that's brought to the table? I I do sometimes. And there's two things that you've put well there. And one that I'm going to dwell on for a second because I think that's that's exactly it. You know, oftentimes people come with a measurement and go, I did this magazine and yeah, everyone read it. It's like, congratulations, that was your actual job. Um <laughs> you know, doing a measurement found well actually what I've done is I've reduced staff turnover by five percent or I've increased our customer satisfaction score by 20%. It's like, yeah, move the dial. Good. That's what you want to go for. But to the employee insight thing, it is one of the most undervalued assets in an organization and time and time again and we do a wide range of things from employee engagement research to kind of culture trackers and looking at cultural change and leadership and things i've talked about but actually sometimes just going out and asking the employees about something they know stuff do you know um the the employees spend time with customers they spend time with other stakeholders they've come from other organizations there is a wealth of knowledge there that most organizations just miss that actually is fantastically valuable. We, we talk about leading and lagging metrics a lot. So some things will measure what's happened. You need some of those. They're uh, usually quite reliable metrics. So revenue, classic lagging metric. Yeah, it's not, It doesn't tell you how you can do in the future, but it does tell you how well the sales and product team did in the past. Employees are great for leading indicators. Going out to all of your employees, particularly those are customer facing, saying, do you think we face more or less competition now than we did six months ago? That's a really simple question. Doesn't take a lot of time to go ask it. And tracking that month on month gives you actually a really good read on what your competitors are doing and maybe getting to name you. Who's new, right? One Mm. sentence box, right? Who's new on the block? Who's a new competitor you're really worried about right now? Companies that do that, and we've got a few that do that, those kind of employee insights, particularly from sales teams, from customer service teams, are usually two or three quarters ahead of their competition. Wow. Because whilst the rest are waiting for the information to bubble up to the exec team when it's become a huge problem, they're like, on our quarterly dashboard of our employee insights, there's two new company names appearing that we've never seen before. Who are these boys and girls? Find out how we outcompete them quickly. Yeah, for the other organizations, they're not using that employee insight. It's another two or three quarters before they know. And by then, that competitor's still in the market share and it's too late to move. So employees are smart. You know, you hired them, right? <laughs> As a yeah, yeah. team of saying, do you think you hired good people? Cool. Ask them what they think. They know stuff. 
And I love that idea of not just looking out the rearview mirror of saying that's how we did, but actually looking out the front and thinking that's where we're going. What do we think the next three months, two months, next quarter is going to bring, next year is going to bring? I, I, I love that. That's just so useful. And to the role of the IC person in that, again, a lot of IC people get very grounded in my, you know, my job is to kind of gatekeep all of the comms. It's like, you can do that. You'll totally exhaust yourself and burn out pretty quick. <laughs> what you can do is know the audiences so that when the exec team's going, well, actually, we're really concerned about X, Y, Z to go, actually, do you know what we need to do on that is I'd kind of go for, you know, we'll use this platform um, or we'll do this survey and we'll actually go for frontline staff in these areas who've been in the organization two to three years. They'll have really good answers on that. Right. Mm, That's the mm. kind of thing. If a comms person does that in a leadership team meeting or brings that in, people are like, wow, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, or some insight kind of comes back and the comms person can contextualize and say, well, I know that everyone's saying that they're, um, they're seeing this particular competitor as a really big threat. By the way, you know, I happen to know that we've actually hired five people from there recently. So they're probably hearing a lot about it from that. So, yeah, we probably want to watch that, but there's a bit of context to that. Let's maybe ask some other people who kind of outside of that team what they think as well. Like knowing that map of the territory and knowing where to land comms and get comms from is, is a massive value add for a high caliber internal communications person because there's a read that they have there that really you know, most other people in the organization don't have. One thing I haven't asked you much about is demographics and the kind of questions we should be asking because I think that often gets forgotten when I speak to clients we want to ask this then we want to ask that and then we must ask this it's like okay but what do you want to know about the people that are answering these questions I've seen a slight shift away from simply male female age length service role in the organization a little bit towards more sentiment and mindset questions is that a sensible and good shift. That is a really important topic for people to understand. And again, it's kind of one of my bugbears. Right? If you if you stick things in boxes, you no longer know where they are. I said again slowly. If you stick things in boxes, you no longer know where they are. Why is that? Because it's in the box. You don't know now. It's like I've classified this person as G or P. It's like, well, that's awesome. Um, you've now diminished you know, all of the all of the data you know about that to, to one dimension. That's great, and you now know don't know where they are. So, unless you can operationalize that, unless you can do something with that segmentation with that question, probably don't ask it. Oh, okay. Um, you know, there are times where you do want to do that, and it, and it's a big thing for us now is understanding: do different people have different experiences in the organization? And are there systemic reasons for that they need addressing? That's really valuable and really important. However, oftentimes actually sticking people in boxes is, is not the answer to getting to the bottom of that. Um, so, you know, demographic questions, I mean, again, like one of Benjamin's pet rants is the whole like, oh, this is how you communicate with Gen Z people. It's like, I have four kids. They're all technically pretty much the same generation. If you try and communicate to them in the same way and make the same assumptions around them, good luck to you, my friend, you're toast. The things that drive individual difference are so complex and you know, things like invisible disabilities, all sorts of other things, social mobility, all sorts of factors. Actually understand kind of what, where you want to divide these and make sure it's something you can operationalize because it is going to give you some insight you can go do something with. Um, yeah. Otherwise, yeah, lots of people collect data that they can't do anything with. 
most organizations don't have a shortage of, of data and you're going to trundle through the HR systems and it's there in droves. It's about finding the things that you can measure to create the change. Um, and you know, I think that that's something that people are learning right now. And we're kind of teaching people, looking at the employee journey for us is a big thing now. You're measuring what happens before they join, when they join, what happens around that first promotion, what happens when they leave and why, and understanding those things outside of boxes and not hidden in the averages. You know, an average will give you like, oh, it's 80% positive. Well, that's, that's a, a useful lagging indicator. Actually, what you want to look at and what we're doing a lot of the time is let's look at the shape of the curve. You know, there's a little cluster of people over here that said, when we asked, does this organization treat people fairly? 80% were like strongly agree, but actually there's a little cluster of 10% of people over here and that's not the experience that they're having. How do we change that? So that, mm. you know, those are subtly different things where you can, if you stick things in big boxes, you can lose that sometimes. Mm. I, I love the idea of looking at the outliers because I think that's where you get really useful intelligence. So uh, similarly, the same, the same way, looking at those people who think they are they would really strongly agree with that question. You know, what is their experience of the organisation that's making them feel so positively could potentially be great learning for the rest of the organisation that's just answering that question averagely as well. So, so the outliers on both the, the positive and the negative, I'm guessing, are really, really helpful. Yeah, and, and with, with balance as well, because, right. um, you know, particularly when we're looking at customer engagement, for example, you always have what, what is lovingly called sometimes the chronically dissatisfied customer. And there's not too much to be learned from, from them because they're always going to be that way. And whatever you do, they're going to be that way. And that, that does exist in the extremes, right? There's some employees who they came into the organization, they don't want to be here, but they're not going. Um, they're going to complain about everything in the universe. And it, it doesn't matter what you do, they're never going to be happy. But you can kind of look at that spread. And I think you're right. It's like look beyond the average to include the organization broadly. But I, I just slight caution on the, you know, the extreme outliers. But I think the important thing is you said pirate ways of doing this. And I remember one organization that didn't have any money at all. So they just stood, and this was the this is the time when we could all work in the same building, but they stood by the revolving doors as people walked in and walked out, just with a clipboard and a pen and just literally ask people a few questions as they were walking in and out. So you can do this. I mean, I don't want people to feel put off. We, we're having quite a technical conversation and we're talking often about tools that make this a lot easier. But presumably you're not against a, a, a very, very simple, uh, no-nonsense, you know, low-ask way of doing this. Just As you say, just ring up a few people and ask them two or three questions. As long as they're well-calibrated questions, one of my tests is, what would I ever do with the answer to that question? <laughs> And if I just think, you know, I'm never, ever going to use the answers to that question, it goes because it's just wasting people's time. Start small. That's absolutely fine, would you say? Yeah, I, absolutely. And it is, you know, it is to some degree, uh, to a lot of degree, it's a skill and a practice. Right. So I think if you on, if you start with understanding that, I'm, you know, you're not going to be expert at this and you need to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Stop people at the door and, and, and ask and learn because you'll then gradually learn. Like, well, I did. You know, this week I asked people at the door. Oh, I actually realized that, you know, if I like ask people first thing in the morning, the answers <laughs> are different than the crew that, you know, come in at lunchtime or they go out at dinner time. And you start to understand. And like I said, one of the great things for us is we get to do a lot of, of primary research and a lot of research. And we 
we kind of learn and we look at other research we're like ah okay that's great but there are these problems with it so but that comes from that experience of doing it so yeah it's you know it doesn't have to be big and expensive and it doesn't have to take long and i was you know, mentioning with a lot of the stuff we turn around really really quickly now thanks to the technology but actually doing those kind of quick interventions yourself you can turn around and get really quick results again mm. though it's just kind of learning and understanding that you, you, you're kind of learning because you'll discover things like sample biases you know actually i ask these people i get a different answer you know actually mm. if i want a balanced answer i need to ask it but that comes from doing it doing it repeatedly so yeah make it part of your practice to do that mm. get you know feedback right it's really what we're talking about um, it's a really important part of professional practice and it's something you should just build into what you do. I think it was last year you did a piece of research with Jenny Field into remote employees and it just struck me that this pandemic <laughs> has meant that a large proportion of the workforce worldwide has become more dispersed and I guess remote in in one way or many ways. Do you have any reflections on how COVID-19 might change the way we work, change the way then because of the way we're working, we then research and measure in our organisations. I was thinking, does it become more important to measure in a way because you can't walk around and soak up the atmosphere? I'm finding lots of clients are telling me that that's becoming quite frustrating, that they can't get a temperature check just by walking the corridors. I don't know if you have any reflection on this. Yeah, and it was interesting that piece of research with Jenny turned out to be incredibly prescient, um, little mm. did we know at the time, um, and and formed the basis of you know, a lot of what we've done this year, which is a, about kind of remote working and work from home and, and back to office and all these transitions that we've been helping organisations measure. And there definitely has been a shift. And for some organisations, it has been incredibly dramatic and we, we had one organization that were on a three-year journey to moving towards remote working and they completed that journey in exactly four and a half days um so you know there's there's nothing like a legal deadline to uh, move a project along a little so and and that has been for some organizations you know it, a traumatic change that they are still absorbing it's changed the role of line managers it's changed in all sorts of different ways what's expected of them both in terms of comms coming over their heads and comms coming through them and having to deal with things that are really very new to them. And you know, there's a lot of talk about employee well-being and, and mental health at the moment, rightly so. These are really important issues and are now you know, very much in the, in the workplace. Um, there's a phrase that gets banded around here that the changes that last through these things are changes that were in progress anyway. A crisis just accelerates them. Yes. And so I think this shift away from the office being the be all and end all for everybody, that's definitely changing. And organizations have got to understand how do I manage in a world where I can't see the employees other than, you know, on a Zoom with a mm. with a fake background. Um mm. or Teams, other platforms are available. Mm. Um so it, it needs to become part of organizational practice now to to understand how you you measure and communicate that and again it's not just for the, the leaders that's for the whole organization as well because it mm. is is that much harder to have a read on what's going on and an accurate map of the landscape when people are dispersed and there isn't that transparency i mean it's it's great being able to jump on you know a video call um but you can miss a lot of stuff in that that you would pick up in the office whether somebody's struggling with workload mm. or they have the right environment actually you, you've got to be much more sensitive to that and again you need an accurate map because as i say people right now are having very different experiences 
you know, for some mm. people, this is great. You know, I, I, I'm, uh, like I mentioned, despite the way I sound sometimes, I'm a shy introvert. So for the most part, this is awesome for me. It's like, mm. hey. But actually, you know, I still kind of very much uh, miss being able to, to kind of talk and interact with people. So, you know, different people having different, different experiences, you've got to, to measure that and be able to intervene early. It's really, really important. And that's changing organizations' roles and how they look mm. after employees as well. That reminds me to ask you about how we capture data. So when we were speaking before this call, I remember saying to you how much I love Qual. I love asking the questions, really digging away for the information. But you said something really interesting about how for some people, they would rather answer an open question where they have to type in the answer than give that to someone personally over the phone or over a Zoom call or something like that. And I thought, oh, how interesting is that? Are you noticing that more and more, that people are actually getting very, very comfortable about giving their insight and how they feel, you know, using a keypad as opposed to actually speaking to a real human being? Yeah, and a parallel for those who are perhaps a little bit older in the world is the desktop publishing revolution. Uh, yeah, there was a time where... Um, yeah, if you, if you wanted to produce a newsletter, though, that that was something that very few, you know, few organisations could do and had the skills to do. And then these desktop publishing packages came around. You know, this software you can install on your PC and you could produce a newsletter, um, and anybody could. And oh my goodness, anybody did. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit like that with survey software now. It's kind of been democratised, right? Anybody can create a survey and put one out there. And oh my goodness, anybody does. Then <laughs> it's very different from kind of building and, and creating a good survey and and something that that is useful and and meaningful mm. at least test your survey i think might be one thing i'd suggest before you before you launch it yeah i think yeah again you can you can do that at the professional end and, and we kind of pride ourselves on being able to kind of linguistically deconstruct sentences and work out how they're framed and understand what the biases are and, and there's that end at, at the other end uh, for free uh, there is just kind of taking your set of questions and wandering over to somebody in the office that maybe you don't know and going, can you look at this? And then mm. you go, what's this word mean? What yeah. are you asking there? Um, because it's in your head, you know what the context is, but often, you know, a, a kind of cold read of a survey. I mean, we have a very flashy word in the industry. We talk about cognitive testing, <laughs> but really that's just showing somebody the questions and watching. It's like, oh my goodness, they pull the distressed face because they have no idea what I'm asking. Let's go what reword that. Yeah, um, absolutely. And again, it's good learning for comms people around kind of language as well and what what works there and what people understand because your words for things, yeah, we've used lots of technical words here, for example, may not be meaningful to, to a frontline worker in the organization. Um, when Jenny and I were doing the remote worker research, you know, things like team, right? That sounds like a very straightforward word. Company, that sounds like a straightforward word. It means very different things in different contexts to different people. Some people are like, I don't have a team. It's like, well, there seems to be a set of people that you work with. Yeah, that's my shift. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you, you come to comms people merrily sending out, it's like, how do you engage with your teams? Like, I don't have a team. Mm. Don't know what you mean by that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, test, yeah. test, 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 test. Yeah. What do you think of the leaders? You know, what, what leaders? You mean my line manager? You mean his manager? You mean his manager? <laughs> you mean chief executive? I think there's just time to ask you, hopefully, some quick fire questions, Benjamin, if that's okay. What would most surprise people about Benjamin Ellis? Oh, wow. That's, 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 I always think I haven't got any surprises. And then I just kind of talk about something and people are like, you what? 
I, I play guitar and keyboards. And actually, it was a very thin stretch of time where I was actually, um, yeah, kind of a rock star. I was like supporting a, a, a top 40 act. So wow. that weird things I've done. A very brief interval. I was an official royal photographer. There you go. Um, so really? <laughs> I've had the privilege of doing some fairly kind of wild stuff. I like discovering things from different viewpoints. So for me, that's just, that was kind of life. But occasionally I let something slip from people like you, you did what? <laughs> right. Oh, you're not going to get away with that. So the, the top 40 act was? Which we oh, it's a, it's a US one from like a decade ago that they, <laughs> they'd never charted over here, but over there, they were, you know, they're in the, in the top 40. Uh, absolute um, riot. It was an interesting, different way to see the world. And actually, just on that note, I'd, I'd say for comms people, it's like spend time in different contexts. You will learn a lot when you come back to your own, whether it's in different cultures, different kind of companies, behind the scenes in different industries. And that's one of the reasons I did it. It's like, how does the fashion world work? How does the photography world work? How does the music industry work? Actually, for me, that really helped me understand how the tech world works because um, and again, it's a really cheesy one, isn't it? It's like fish are the last people to be aware of water. Water, absolutely. Um, yeah, there is that thing. It's like people who've been in a certain kind of organization their whole career. Yeah, a lot of times cons people coming into an organization, coming in from a different context, that in itself is a huge amount of value that you bring there. That thing, you know, to that question, what would surprise people about you? Um, that, that can be often helpful because most business problems, a different industry has already solved. Yes. Um, yeah. The, the yes. music industry went through a whole kind of massive challenge around digital. It solved a whole set of problems, failed to solve a whole set of other ones. So yeah, I mean, spend time in different domains. It's fun. It will stretch your brain. <laughs> what do you wish you had known when you first started out? A lesson I think it took me a while to learn. Getting to the right question is probably the most important thing. Ooh. If you can get to the right question, the answers are usually easy. And most mistakes are not getting the wrong answer. They're having the wrong question. So really good questions are really important. And actually, the people who are most valuable to, to a senior exec are people who ask really good questions because everybody's got an answer. Very few people have the right question or know what the right question is. And that's a real skill. And I mentioned, you know, computers are getting good at answers. Computers suck at getting to the right question. Humans are the right humans trained the right way are really actually quite good at it. And that's most of insight is what's the right question that you can ask right now that will unlock everything, build that skill. I love that answer. I mean, quite a few listeners will know that I have a small little crush on Tim Ferriss, but he says, I think the quote is something like questions are your pickaxes and I, and I, and then they unearth and they uncover new knowledge. But that's exactly how I see questions. It's that way of getting deeper and getting real insight and information. And I don't know any other way of doing it, really. I love that. I love that answer so much. Anyway, <laughs> what, would you, <laughs> what would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? Wow. I mean, actually, for me, that's kind of becoming a, a bit of a personal mission is I think I'd look at how we can transform business cultures so that they embrace and support family life. And again, in all of its different guises, because everybody is in one way or another a member of a family. And I think it's something that businesses, to their massive detriment, underserve. And I think particularly as society evolves, I think it's really important that actually businesses understand and embrace that. I don't know how you do that, but you know, 
if I could pick a really hard problem to not fail at, I would love to do that. I'd love to have businesses be more of a, a social purpose and support family life because, hey, we're learning now, right? That's, that's the important things. I think this crisis is probably accelerating that need and potentially making it even easier to solve because, as one of my guests said, we don't have a work-life balance. We have a work-life collision now. Those two worlds have completely collided. So we completely understand why you'd want that. But also maybe there's light at the end of the tunnel into fixing it as well, potentially. So what book would you recommend all communication professionals read? Is there one? Well, I, I, got, I, I deliberately, anyone who has a, a Zoom or Teams call with me, there is no bookshelf in my background. I'm not I know, you're missing the competitive me. bookshelf. It's <laughs> like there might be guitars or something like that, but, but no. But, but glancing over to my, my secret off-screen bookshelf, the one that jumps out, not just because it has a really striking uh, cover, <laughs> you can see it, is Fatfulness by Hans Rosling. Um, and you may or may not know Hans Rosling, um, kind of worked closely with a number of people. The, the, the front of the book, and this, this tells you, the front of the book has a quote from Bill Gates. The back of the book has a quote from Melinda Gates. Um, so that gives you some context. And Hans Rosling, who, who has passed away now, and this book, Fatfulness, was really his kind of final bit of life's work has been instrumental in shaping how we understand and present data. And actually it's a really accessible book that for a comms person will help you be less afraid of data, understand its strengths and weaknesses. And actually the book itself is an amazing act of communication. Um, Hans Rosling's TED talks have been watched millions and millions and millions of times a fantastic communicator that you can learn from. And as a book, Factfulness is a great way of getting comfortable with data and what it does and doesn't tell you. And the other thing it'll do is it tells you a bit about the world and what our world's like and what's changing in the world. So it's a great read, um, was very, very popular at the time and, and is a, a, a book worth searching out and thoroughly studying. Thank you very much for that recommendation. All the links, listeners, as you know, will be in the show notes. Finally, you get a billboard for millions to see. What message would you put on that billboard? I mean, who hasn't misspent an advertising budget? That's a challenging one, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, do you know, I, I think actually I would put up, and, it, and yeah, the copywriters will, will, will you know, uh, have a nightmare because you kind of want something short. But I, I would say I'd put up, spend time with people you disagree with and find out how you can work together. Oh, now that is a quote for our time, I believe. Yeah, and we, you know, we, we, people cling on to difference right now and surround themselves with people who agree with them. And again, you know, leadership lessons for future leaders, surround yourself with people who think differently than you do. You don't need people who think the same as you. Then <laughs> it's like, yeah. they're not helping. Don't, you know, don't be afraid of people who disagree with you. Understand, because if they disagree with you, they either know something you don't, or they think in a way that you don't, and oh my goodness, you can learn from that. And there's a real culture right now of just dismissing difference. Actually, embrace difference because you will learn something. Because guess what? You're not always right. And again, you know, the biggest learning is learning when you're wrong and, and fixing that. Discovering that you're right really just <laughs> doesn't move you on in the world. <laughs> Discovering that you're wrong and being able to change, that's what helps you grow as an individual and again 
you know, I think from society's point of view, understanding that people think differently and that we can coexist is really, really important. And that's been true for thousands of years. And it's even more important in the era of, you know, Facebook and Twitter and an argument being two keystrokes away. I think there is an Aristotle quote, which is something like, it is the mark of an educated man to be able to entertain an idea without agreeing with it or something like that. But it's that idea that you can entertain your idea, you can take it on, you can pull it apart, you can understand it. You don't actually need to agree with it at the same time, but all of those things are, especially in today's world when we live inside our little echo chambers, don't we? You've got to work hard to step out of them, haven't you? And actually start following people and reading people and listening to people that you fundamentally disagree with. Otherwise, as you say, what are you going to learn? Well, I'm my, my late and incredibly great father-in-law. I remember once I went to a lecture with him and I came out and I was like, what did you think of that? And he said, it was rubbish. I was like, well, it seemed like a really good lecture to me. He said, no, it was rubbish. I agreed with everything he said. <laughs> and that just kind of stuck with me. It's like, yeah, do you know what? If, if you're just kind of listening and nodding and going, I know this already, it's like, move out of the room, right? Fine. You want to be somewhere where you're like, I didn't know that. I didn't think that. That doesn't sound right. Hang on, let me pick that apart a bit. Well, Benjamin, let's hope that we have done that for listeners today. I just want to say thank you so much for your time. I've thoroughly enjoyed this entire conversation. So thank Likewise, you. Likewise, Casey. Thank you very much. Is that things like good questions? I mean, this doesn't happen without good questions. So thank you so much for your for your <laughs> questions. And yeah, I hope people take some good stuff away from it. It's um, learning is a lifetime's journey. And comms is a great way to learn, right? I mean, just listening to people interact and making that your job, that is an amazing privilege in itself. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. To find out more about the books and the other resources that Benjamin and I mentioned, head over to the show notes on our website. That's abcom.co.uk forward slash podcast. While you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It'll give you updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of internal comms. We currently have two really big shows in the making. I don't actually want to jinx anything by giving too much away at this stage. All I would say is you might want to hit the subscribe button or follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Hopefully we'll be making some announcements about those shows very soon. All that remains is to say a big thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms Podcast. Until we meet again, lovely listeners, do stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts. <laughs>